0: This is the Victory Away from the Venue podcast, showing a different side of the athletes you know and love, or maybe don't know and love, and how what happens far removed from the bright lights and the TV cameras can provide a different way to look at accomplishment. And now here are your hosts, two friends, dating back to college and sports junkies their entire lives, Matt Swinney and Zach Wells. Welcome everyone to the inaugural Victory Away from the Venue podcast. I'm Zach Wells. And Matt Swinney's joining me from, what, 15, 16, 1700 miles away in Austin, Texas. hey Hello, Matt. How you doing, brother? I'm doing awesome, man. I want to just introduce you and, and introduce myself to our listeners. We go back a long time. Matt and I went to college together in Texas. I was a sports anchor here for a long time in Cincinnati. I've since gone on to open my own video production company, kind of following the entrepreneurial lead of Matt, who I want. You, Matt, to tell people what you're up to.
1: Yeah, so uh, yeah, So Zach and I know each other from Trinity University, the Fighting Trinity Tigers in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Uh, so we've known each other
0: 25 years now-ish, something like that. And if and- you're, Matt, let me just jump in. And if you're like, ha- where have I heard Trinity? Where have I heard Trinity before? It's the school that had the crazy laterals about 10 years ago in that right. football game. Yep. That's where you've seen Trinity. If you don't know what we're talking about, Google it because it's an incredible play.
1: Yeah, that's right. It was like 10 or 12 laterals to, and to win a game. They to scored. Win a game. Yeah. Yes. Maybe even like a playoff game. It was something crazy. Anyway. Correct. Yeah. So we, so we've known each other for about 25 years now and um, in many ways bonded over sports. You know, when you go to Trinity, it's not exactly a, uh, it's not the university of Texas. We're not talking about, you know, big giant football, baseball, basketball games. And so you don't have a huge kind of uh, portion of the community that, really love sports. And I think Zach and I really found each other over that. I, um, I grew up a baseball player, um, played a little bit into college, um, love the game, still love the game. uh, And, but it's never been my career. I'm I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur. I own Austin Fashion Week, and then similar concepts in Dallas and Houston. Um, So I produce fashion runway shows, funny enough, for a living. Never thought that'd be something that I would be interested in, but, um, that's, what's paid the bills over the last decade or so. And, um, honestly during coronavirus is, uh, I'd had this idea for a couple of years to create a podcast, uh, because of the fashion business, I've gotten to know a lot of athletes, particularly retired athletes, um, over time, they like to, they like to come sit front row and watch models walk down runways, shocker. Um, and so,
0: you know, let me sit down, hold on. I'm so surprised.
1: Yeah, right, right, right. Um, they like cocktails and uh, models. Like, can you imagine that 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 former professional athletes would like that? No, but what's funny is is we also do a lot of charity work, and so we've gotten to know a lot of athletes through that. And being in Austin, University of Texas, um, you know, in a lot of in a lot of, and it's a desirable place to live, so a lot of athletes retire here. So I've gotten to know a bunch of them. And and as you get to know athletes, you realize um, how dedicated they are to their community. Um, you know, really, really just great human beings. Like it, it takes a lot to be a professional athlete that isn't just being really, really good at your sport. And that's what I've really learned over time. And so I, I brought to Zach with his beautiful sportscaster voice. Um, and his, it's Matt His great. Five o'clock shadow that y'all can't see, but I can right now. Um, I brought it to I him. like to think of it as a beard, but
0: yeah. if you well, think it's I just mean,
1: flakes, I mean, I guess, I guess we can call that a beard. Um, I mean, it's 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 at least as long as mine. So anyway, he, I just I, I thought that I really wanted to create something that was around, um, you know, what all the good things that athletes do. You know, I really think that in the news, and you know, we hear a lot about all the negative stuff that athletes do, and that's usually why they make the news or because they want a game. And I really wanted to view it more, view this podcast more through a a personal level. You know, what makes people tick. Um, you know, a lot of them, what are they doing in retirement? Um, you know, how dedicated they are there to their communities, you know, all of those things. And, and so I brought it to you, Zach, and, um, thought you could help pull it together. You have a media background and, um, and I'm really excited to do this with
0: you. I am too. Jeff Blake is our first guest played 14 years as a quarterback in the NFL. And you might be like, Oh, Zach, you set that up because you're in Cincinnati and he played six years for the Bengals. The irony is After leaving the Bengals, he went on and made a couple of more NFL stops and retired in Texas. And Matt, that's where you met him at a a fashion event. So Jeff Blake, phenomenal insights on race, insights on discrimination in the recruiting process when he was going through it in the 1980s, insights on being a retired player and some of the short-term memory loss he deals with, just a lot of really good things that we got into. And it's always great to have an honest guest. And he was about as honest as you can get, so I'm excited for that. Matt, you are a baseball guy through and through, and you are a Houston Astros fan through and through, and I want you to tell me why I'm wrong, please. <laughs> Here we go. Joe Kelly, nah. a pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers, your main man, your man, do the pouty lip right now like he did to Carlos oh. Correa, do the pouty lip. <laughs> Why is he serving an eight-game suspension, which is eight games more than Jose Altuve, Carlos Correa, George Springer, and Alex Bregman combined served for cheating egregiously on their way to the World Series a couple of years ago? Why am I wrong?
1: Why are you, why are you why wrong?
0: Why am I wrong for just seeing some inequity here in terms of the punishments that have been handed down in this whole not only cheating scandal but in the fallout?
1: All right, so so much of me wants to say, well, Joe Kelly's serving a suspension because he's an asshole. Um, but that's not really, at the end of the day, what it is. Let, let, let Let's talk about this for a second. Dude threw 96 into Alex Bregman's ear. Okay. Now, now, he now missed-
0: you, got, you got me there. You got me there. No, that's that's not cool, and that could kill a person. Yes. Now, he missed him. Um, Thankfully.
1: Well, because Joe Kelly couldn't hit the broad side of a barn, which is one of the problems here, right, is because he – the question here, I, I was watching Sports Center this morning, um, or yesterday morning, I guess, and they were talking about whether or not it was intentional, because what? Joe Kelly is so wild, and even Eduardo Perez, who I who I respect, who I, who I think is a great baseball mind, he said, "Tony's yeah, son." So what? He's Tony's son. Yeah, yeah. Tony yeah. Perez. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. So he had, uh, so he he commented that you know the Bregman one was real, but he's not even sure that the Correa or the Gurriel ones or even aimed at him. He's just that wild. And because both of those were knuckle curves and to be fair, he may have just let those may have just slipped. Although the Correa one did not look like it slipped to me. Here's the thing. If you're the problem is, is look, you can say what you want about the Astros. They cheated. They absolutely cheated. However, lots of big leaguers have cheated over time. Um, I'm not trying to apologize for them. They shouldn't have done it. It was egregious cheating. However, for whatever reason we decided as a society as major league baseball as fans as players whatever we decided about this arbitrary line in the sand that we're going to draw and the Astros are over that line in the sand and that's fine but let's not pretend that this is a games with a that this is a game with a huge history of people not crossing that line it's been crossed forever what players seem to be pissed off about is that players weren't suspended Correct. Okay. Fine. My argument would be, if you had, if 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 Rob Manfred had said, hadn't given that immunity to the players, I don't think we would have ever gotten to the truth, right? So there's no real reason for the players to lie once Rob Manfred has given them immunity. So if you really want to get to the bottom of it and you really want to slough this out and make sure it never happens again, give them immunity and then allow them to just move on with their lives. He got the truth. He knows what it is. A.J. Hinch paid the price. Jeff Lunau paid the price, right? Okay, back to Joe Kelly. The problem is, is that Rob Manfred was incredibly clear. And what he said, and by the way, he was very clear twice. The first time was after the Yankees and Red Sox got caught cheating, which they did back in 2016, if I'm right, No, no, no. 2018. Wait, what was it? Anyway, after they had gotten caught cheating the first time, right? He sent out the memo to all the GMs that said, if anybody does this again, then GMs and managers are going to pay the price. I believe it was 2016 because I believe the memo came out in 2017. The memo came out in 17. That's why I was getting confused. Right. And so the Astros still did it in 2017. Sounds like they did a little bit at the beginning at 18 and then they disbanded it. Right? Like that seems to be the, the pretty consistent story we've all heard. So here's the problem. He promised the players immunity before he knew what team it was. He didn't know anything else. All he said was GMs and managers are going to pay the price. Players wouldn't get suspended. So he'd already made that promise before he knew what, what, what the team was or how egregious it was. So he'd already, that was already done. The players had agreed to it. They knew it was there. Right? So Fast forward now, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. He fired Luna or suspended Luna, suspended A.J. Hinch, suspended Alex Quora, right? Now, fast forward to Joe Kelly. All three of whom lost their jobs. Correct. All three of whom lost their jobs. Hell, Carlos Beltran lost his job, and he was outed even though he was a player at the time, which to me seems patently unfair, but that's a different discussion for a different time. Here's the thing. Fast forward to Joe Kelly. In the offseason, when every player, especially the Dodgers players, talked about how they were cheated out of a championship, blah, 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 blah. Dude, you still got to do it between the lines. I get it. You weren't cheated out of Jack as far as I'm concerned. Go win. Um, the problem is Manfred at the time said anybody who retaliates against the Astros or any other team that was thought to be cheating will be suspended and fined. What did Joe Kelly do? He threw at Alex Bregman. Was that retaliation for the cheating? I think it has to be, right? And by the way, not only did he not apologize for it, you're the one who saw the Instagram post that he posted with, you know, little baby heads of Astros players sitting in his lap. And so here's the thing. He's not apologetic for it. That's fine. He doesn't have to. But then don't bitch about getting an eight-game suspension.
0: You knew what was going to happen the second you let that ball go. The best thing that the Astros could do to end all of this Three things. One of them is not in their control. Rob Manfred totally screwed this up a couple of years ago because baseball players have been policing themselves since the beginning of baseball. And you knew when the manager and the general manager have to walk the plank for a year, and like I mentioned, A.J. Hinch, Jeff Lunau, and Alex Cora have all since been effectively fired from their teams, the players are going to want retaliation. And how do you retaliate? It's getting hit by a pitch. Now there's a fine art to getting hit by a pitch and it's not 96 at someone's head. You put it in the small of their back in between the numbers, go to first base. Okay. Manfred screwed this up. Where the Astros have some say in how long this goes, they could do one of two things. If I got caught cheating, I am going to suspend myself. And the way you can suspend yourself in 2020 is by opting out of the decision to play. You forfeit your salary, you forfeit your stage, you forfeit the 60 games. And then I think when you come back in 2021, a player who's looking over at you and is like, "Eh, I'm thinking about hitting you. Wait a minute. He gave up the salary. He gave up the stage. He was contrite. I, I think we need to move on with it. You can do that or if you're going to play and you're going to take the salary and we're all going to try to move forward without the Astros ever really being held to account on any of it is you just can't complain. You cannot whine. You cannot throw a tantrum. You cannot empty the dugout. You cannot do any of that. And, and to Alex's credit, Alex Bregman, he took 96 over his hair and on over his batting helmet. On a
1: pitch, by the way.
0: On a 3-0 pitch. No, you don't hit somebody in the head. He set his stuff down and he went to first base. I don't believe okay. he said anything.
1: Yep. So I don't so. believe
0: he said anything. So the, the, my point is, if you don't like Joe Kelly, you don't have to like Joe Kelly. But pitchers are going to continue to do this as long as they get a reaction. And the best thing the Astros can do is just be like, look, we've got it coming. We're going to go to first base. We're not going to say anything. And then hopefully it'll end quicker. I think this just prolongs it if you're an Astros fan.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think Bregman took the right tack. He certainly stared Kelly down sure. as he was walking to first base. Fine, well, she can do right. So here, but 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 I think here's the problem, right? So and 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 I get where you're coming from. You know what you're what you're trying to say without saying it exactly is is you know Carlos Correa should just put his stuff down and after he struck out and walked away. But here's the thing: talk about the inning for a second, right? So three O pitch, sure, so very clearly. And by the way, one of the things I did appreciate about Eduardo Perez was if you, if Bregman's your guy on the first pitch, you stick it in his butt, 96 in his butt, by the way, 96 in the small of his back. And if you do that, then, then this is over at least for today. Right. And Correct. he didn't do that. He's too, pardon my word. He's too chicken shit to do that. Right. He waited till it was 3-0 and
0: he's probably going to walk him anyway. And then threw 96 at his head in Joe Kelly. To Kelly's be clear, defense, Matt, to be Matt, to be clear. I don't advocate for putting 96 in someone's head.
1: I know you know. I don't. I don't. You
0: know. I, I don't. I don't advocate for that. I know you. I, know. I'm not here to see someone killed on the baseball field. Right. I know you. I, know. I'm not. I know. But you I know. think there's. I think the Astros need to know that this is coming.
1: Yeah. Sure. But but let's walk through the inning again. So 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 you're right. Bregman put his stuff down, stared him down a little bit, walked to first base. Right. So next batter up, Michael Brantley. Right. So Brantley hits um, into a double play, and Joe Kelly. I don't know if you saw this part of it. This is the part that they've kind of left out of all of the Sports Center highlights. But Joe Kelly goes to cover first base. So it's ground ball to first, throw to second to get Bregman out, come back to first. And Kelly accidentally, to be fair, but his foot kind of caught the front edge of the bag. And Brantley stepped on his foot as he's coming through. And Kelly kind of turned around and looked at Brantley and stared him down. I mean, dude, your foot was in the way. Like, we've all been there if you've played the game. Mm-hmm. But, like, he gets spiked in the ankle a little bit. Uh, funny enough, the next night, um, Brantley well, – the number one rule of covering first base is you have to know where your feet are first. Right. And, and, he, and his was – and he's a relief pitcher. You know, he doesn't – I mean, he does, he's not out there a lot. So, I, I do give Kelly some credit. So, that happened. And the next batter is Yuli Gurriel, right? So, Yuli takes one, knuckle curve. I mean, it was high and tight. It wasn't as high as the Bregman one. Knuckle curve could have slipped it's possible, or just he left it inside a little bit. Yuli kind of looked him down, takes his walk, right? Next pit, next batter is Correa. Well, Correa takes one much even further inside and pretty high um, again, and he stayed in there. He didn't do anything after that pitch, and that's the part that I feel like people are maybe missing here then what happens is, is they finish the at-bat and kelly strikes him out he strikes him out and that should be it and dusty baker talks about this right after the game so correct you've already beaten him right you threw the you threw the pitch at Bregman's head you missed you maybe threw one at Yuli you missed you maybe threw one at Correa you missed and then you struck the guy out shut up and go sit down okay, so if you're fair. gonna say that to me like if you're gonna say that about The Astros, you got to say that on the other side, too. It's not their fault that that your control is so bad you can't even hit a guy. Like, that would have been my comeback, if I'm Correa, of like, dude, you had three chances and you missed us all. Like, what's wrong with you? And instead, what does Kelly do? As he's walking off the mound, he turns around and he looks Correa in the eye and he says, nice swing, B. And
0: as Dusty said, what's Correa supposed to do? basically yeah matt i agree with you it's a couple of guys acting like they're in fifth grade on the right. playground right so and so
1: and so here's the and here's the problem right it to me where this thing got out of hand was look a home plate umpire and a crew chief i don't know if it, i don't know if the crew chief was the home plate umpire in that game but it doesn't matter they know the bad blood between the astros and dodgers if it were me And those two managers of Dave, Dave Roberts and Dusty are coming out to hand, hand out the lineup cards at the beginning of the game. I don't even know if they're doing that right now, but regardless, I would have had a quick little like, Hey guys, I'm going to have a short string, right? We know, we know what's going on. I don't want any funny business. We're playing it straight up. That's the umpire's job. It is not the umpire's job to make a decision about whether or not an Astro gets to take one in the jaw. That's not his job. His job is to police the game and make sure we're playing it straight up. If he didn't do that, that's problem one. I have no idea if he did or not. The biggest problem to me is the second that ball goes sailing past Alex Bregman's head, explain to me how the crew chief of the home plate umpire doesn't point at Joe Kelly and point at Dave Roberts. One, he could have tossed him right there, but I'd have been okay if he hadn't. And he, all he had to do was warn them both. He could, he could even warn the Astros as far as I'm concerned. He could look at Dusty and say, I'm warning you too. Just so we're clear, that was it. That's the one get out of jail free card. But he didn't do that. And then Yuli takes one almost on the hands. He didn't do it then either. And then Correa takes one inside and he didn't do it then either. So to me, this is an umpire problem as much as anything and if you, if you don't, if Manfred has put it down and said, we are not going to retaliate. These guys have big careers. They have wives, they have kids. We're not going to do this. Then to me, the umpire, the umpiring crew has to also be on board with that and it didn't seem like they were.
0: Well, Matt, what do you say? I say we get to our guest. He's yeah. awesome. Let's do Jeff it. Blake, everybody. 14 years in the NFL. Here's our conversation with the guy from East Carolina university. Jeff Blake, Shaken Blake. You were known as Shakin' Blake around here in Cincinnati and around the league. Jeff, thanks for joining us, man. How are you?
2: Uh, thanks for having me, guys. I'm doing really good, man. I'm just um, blessed to have an opportunity to be your first guest on your podcast. And um, hopefully I do a good job for you guys. We well, I want to
0: say, I was going to say we'll give you a, a present or something like that, but when this coronavirus ends, uh, we'll give you like a fist bump or like an elbow bump or whatever. So I'm telling you. Uh, I'm just giving more fashion, fashion Week tickets.
2: Fashion Week tickets. I'm good.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. So for everybody. Yeah. So Jeff, when did we first meet? Five years ago now, maybe six years yeah, ago. Yeah,
2: it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Five, six yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah.
1: You and it's Foster a, were doing that on. radio show, and mm-hmm. you know, I've been on you alls show several times. And uh-huh. yeah, so Jeff, Jeff, and I both live in Austin. Well, actually, you're in, you're in Houston now.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I moved you, to Houston in March.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but he makes his way back to Austin fairly often and uh yeah. you know likes to come sit front row and watch the pretty ladies walk down the runway, right? So yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, on. I
2: mean I it. it's 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 a, it's a it's a great it's a great uh uh event you put on, man. And uh uh and you have to be front row to enjoy it. So
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And we wouldn't see you anywhere else, right? Well, I hope not. <laughs> So Jeff,
0: what kind of fashion game does Matt Sweeney bring to the to the fashion shows? I oh mean, man. I mean, does Matt, he bring it or does he bring it?
2: Matt has some serious swag, man. I'ma tell you that. You know, he has some serious swag. He knows exactly what he wants to put on when he puts it on. And not everybody can wear what Matt Sweeney wears and be able to make it look the way he looks. You know, oh, so, you're making me blush. He's very, he's very confident about what he puts on. And that's what it's <laughs> supposed to be. You'd think fashion he's on the is-
0: tarmac about to get on the charter flight to go to an NFL game, man. I mean, that's how good he looks.
2: Man, fashion is being confident being, uh, um, in what you have on. Because gotcha. everybody's not supposed to wear what you, bet for what you can wear.
1: That's right. right. That's right. Well, speaking of confidence, so you were let, – let's just jump right in. So you were four, 14 years in the NFL, man. I mean, that is that's – a, that's a real career, and it takes a lot out of your body. How do you feel – in retirement?
2: I feel actually pretty good. You know, I try to keep myself up by working out. I'm training a lot, train a lot of quarterbacks all over the country, so. Jeff is still um, rich, by the way, everybody. I'm, I'm, I'm well, um, somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> not as much as used to be. I can tell you. I mean, I'm none of us are, but... <laughs> you know, I'm in decent shape for my age. People say I look good for my age. So, yeah. I'll be 50 this year, so. Uh, uh, but, yeah, uh, I, I, that's just keep working out, I try to eat right and, you know, do, you know, uh, train. I've trained these kids, so I'm out on the field every day pretty much. Uh, I'm on my feet constantly, so that keeps me in some type of shape. So, uh, but, you know, I still have some injuries. You know, I broke my foot in New Orleans, and uh, that's when Aaron Brooks came in. Um, I still have, I have some knee problems sometimes, um, so my foot still bothers me a little bit in my left knee. But other than that, you know, I'm okay. You know, I think I have some short-term memory issues, too.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, yeah, we were going to ask that. I mean, you played in an era when, you know, guys were –
2: quarterbacks weren't protected at all.
1: Yeah, just as strong as they are now, but without any emphasis on really protecting the quarterback the way they do now. So, do do you feel the ramifications of that?
2: Uh, The older I get, I do. The older I get, I do. When I first got in the league, not so much. But you start getting around 50. I'm sure around 55 and 60, I feel it even more.
0: Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I wanted to ask you, Jeff, now there is such an emphasis on player safety, brain safety. You have an independent neurologist that's on the lookout for players that might be having difficulty out there on the field, and then they will flag you know, the team doctor to go and take care of the player. If the same protocols were in place today as when you played, how many – could you take a guess how many concussions you had during the
2: course of your career? Or I can't, I can't even count. Yeah. That, can't it was count. so many. I mean, well, you know, back then we called it, you our not bail wrong. You know, you get your bail wrong. Right. And it was just something that happened, you know, but today that same phrase is called a concussion <laughs> and you get, and you have to go through concussion protocol when you get your bail wrong. Right. Yeah. So we, we didn't, we didn't come off the field cause we got our bail wrong, you know? So, we just kept playing. So, sometimes yeah. I got my bell rung, I can't count. I can't remember that. I mean, that happened. How many times that happened throughout my career, college and pro? Yeah. You know, we just shake it off and keep going. You know, it was some times where I did get, you know, I had to come out of the game, you know, but I was on out for a play or two and then back in it. Now, you know, you come off the field, you get a concussion protocol, you, 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 they won't let you go back out on the field at all. And yeah they take they, it you know, for a couple of weeks yeah they did. sometimes they make you take a whole week off you know so um after a concussion uh or after you have to come out of the game because if you have to come out of the game you 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 have to go through a concussion protocol with the, i know for a fact now with college and, and pro
1: yeah so let's let's switch gears a little bit so obviously we're in post george floyd um Black Lives Matter. That entire mm-hmm. huge movement. Um, we're recording this on the day that of John Lewis's funeral. Uh, I was right. watching some of the coverage earlier with um, Barack Obama speaking, and George W. Bush speaking. What so, a life! You were you were one of the early black quarterbacks in the NFL. Will you talk to us a little bit about what that was like for you?
2: Um. Well, it was about having opportunity. You know, and I think I was one of the lucky ones because I actually had a coach and an offensive coordinator and a head coach and, the, and Bruce Coslett who actually decided that he was going to make a black kid from East Carolina an NFL starting quarterback. Mm-hmm. But he needed the opportunity to make that happen. And once I got the opportunity, it happened. Not everybody gets that opportunity. Back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, you know, um, in the 50s, 60s, they, really <laughs> they, were, they didn't allow blacks to play quarterback. In the 70s, you know, you still had some schools that were still segregated in the fact that they didn't have black um, guys on their roster, you know, in the early 70s, in the 70s, 70, 71 type era. Um, and then you started to see some more black quarterbacks in college football. I mean, you had uh, a had guy at Tennessee, uh black quarterback, you had guys at I mean, mean, fact, they had one at East Carolina at that time, you know, so um, in the mid 70s. So you start seeing it evolve. And what was not happened, the game has evolved. You're starting to see a lot more black quarterbacks playing high school. And then you see then that in terms that mean they have to get recruited and they're playing college football. And now the pros have to recruit what the colleges are putting out. And majority of a lot of the colleges now are, you know, coming out with black quarterbacks, more of a dual threat type guy that can actually run and throw the football. And so you're starting to see more of those type of guys in the NFL. And those guys are producing, you know, the Patrick Mahomes, the, you know, uh, Deshaun Watsons, you know, um, the Lamar Jackson, those guys are producing, which is um, making us look very, very good. and uh, You know, and uh, those guys are carrying the torch on for a lot of guys who went before them that had to, you know, play in um, uh, in, um, almost various situations, like James Shaq Harris, who's a good friend of mine who was with the Rams in 67, just to sit and listen to some of the stories that he, you know, that he would tell me about, you know, having a, you know, can't, you know, couldn't, you know, ride, you know, with the team to the stadium and had to use a different locker room from the team and couldn't stay in the same hotel as the team stayed in, had to stay in a a black hotel and couldn't stay with with the team. And, um, so, you know, just to hear those type of things. And, you know, this guy's still living. You know, I just talked to him last week, you know, and a lot of people think this stuff is a long time ago. And, you know, it was during my grandfather's time, during my father's time, you know. so And, and those guys are still living. So um, I, I still get to hear those stories sometimes. You know, sometimes it's shocking to hear what went on during their lifetime. It's crazy.
0: I'm reading the Vince Lombardi biography right now and there's a story in there about him taking the Packers down to New Orleans to play the Saints, and they were getting off of the team bus going into the hotel, and the black players would get pulled off to the side and take a cab off to a hotel Mm off-site. They were not allowed to stay at the team Mm -hmm. hotel. And Mm -hmm. finally, Vince Lombardi just lost his mind. He said, look, either all of the Green Bay Packers stay at the team hotel or none of the Green Bay Packers stay at the team hotel, you guys decide. And from that point on, under Vince Lombardi, all of the Green Bay Packers stayed at the team hotel. Mm -hmm. So, Jeff, I wanted to ask you, I I read an interesting article, it was a couple of years ago now, about Warren Moon. And Mm -hmm. Warren Moon played at the University of Washington, a football Mm -hmm. tradition-rich school, was the MVP of the Rose Bowl in
2: 1977,
0: Mm -hmm. and went to Canada for a long time to pursue his dream to play quarterback and then came to the NFL and just lit up the record books. And now he's, I believe the only African-American quarterback enshrined in Canton, Ohio. Did you, during your recruiting process for college ever run into coaches who were like, Hey Jeff, we really like your game, but we'd Uh, love for you to play safety. Jeff, we really like your game. We want you to play corner. Jeff, you're a great player, but why don't you come here to a power five school and play wide receiver for us? Did that happen to you?
2: Every school in the state of Florida, every power five school in the state of Florida. What did they say to you? You can come. To, you can come to our school, but you can't play quarterback. It was just that simple. And this was in the late '80s. Yeah, this like '87, '88. '87, '88. You know. So and did you and did you consider
1: I, did you consider that Jeff
2: to be able to go to a school? No, like hell, hell no. Good for you. Good for <laughs> you. I went to a school that was going to play them every year. <laughs> <laughs> even better. I went to a school. Now we got our asses beat, but <laughs> I went to a school that I had opportunity to play those schools every year. You know, and it's okay. You know, uh East Carolina was a school for me, and uh, I didn't I didn't um um buck up at the fact that I had to go to a school like East Carolina even though I was ranked the number 2 quarterback coming out of the state of Florida in 1988. You know, and but I was comfortable going to East Carolina because, one, they had a history of having black quarterbacks. So that's, that was nothing new for them, you know. Yeah. Uh, so they made me feel very comfortable with me coming and playing. And actually, they were going to give me an opportunity to actually play because I didn't even redshirt my freshman year. So they actually was looking for me to play early. So that's how good they felt about me. And so when somebody wants you like that and wants you to play, dude, that's where you go play.
0: Yeah. What kind yeah. of a, a- – what kind of a a fuel, what kind of a fire was lit within you, Jeff, to be like, yeah, I'm going to go and I'm going to pursue my dream and I'm going to go play?
2: Well, you know, the, 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 the fire was you can't do it. You're not going to do it. They're not going to let you do it. <laughs> You're not going to have an opportunity to do it. You ain't tall enough, you know. The only thing they could say about me is that at that time, because I was considered short at that time now, I'm, I'm a, I am an um, average-sized NFL quarterback now. <laughs> but yeah, at that time I was considered short. So at 6-1 I was considered short. Now like I said I'm I might be above average now with the right. Murrays and the Jubrezes <laughs> and and and, and uh, all those guys that's like under, you know, I think Russell under like at 6 foot, you know. So I might be a little bit above average now. So but um um yeah, I I that just had a, I, I I always had a chip on my shoulder. I always I was on the borderline of being – I was in the, right in that middle where you have to be between the middle of confidence and cockiness. I was right in the middle, right on that fine line. And, and when you play on that fine line, man, it puts you at a whole another level, you know, where your confidence in your game. Is, you, have, you have no doubt about who you are as a player, how you play, how confident you are. And, you know, you got a chip on your shoulder. somebody step to you, you're going to step back to them. And not only are you going, you're going to talk it, but you're going to walk it as well.
0: And when you're in charge of the huddle, you have to have that kind of swagger.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, it, It's about having leadership and commanding, commanding and managing. That's one of the things I try to teach my young quarterbacks. Is the first thing you have to command with is your mouth, and that starts with your cadence. And, you know, a lot of these kids, they can't even do a cadence right, you know. And then when I do my cadence, you know, their team, like, whoa. well, that, I just woke them up, you know. So that's a form of leadership. Just by the way you talk and communicate with your team, and so those are the things that I try to, you know, pass on to the kids that I train, uh, and helping them try to get to the next level.
0: Jeff, did you believe coming out of high school that there was a racist element to the recruiting process, or would the co- would the coaches come out and just say we don't, we're not going to play a black yeah. quarterback here, or would they would they say Jeff, you're, you're a little too short, Jeff, you're not not quick, Jeff, your arms not where well. we want it to be.
2: They made up excuses to uh, not give me the opportunity to go play at those top five schools like that. They made up excuses. but and, and my dad had already helped me to the game. You know, my dad was my high school coach, you know, and my dad played in the CFL. So my dad had football blood, you know. So my dad already hit me, hit me up to the game. So it was something that – it was something I was already aware of, but I didn't let it affect me, and I wasn't looking for it. You know, I wasn't going to say, oh – they didn't let me play because of this. So they didn't let me play because of that. Cause my dad had already groomed me for that. You know, I just needed the opportunity at that point, and East Carolina gave me that opportunity. That's awesome. Yeah. So so like I said, I I didn't use that, you know, to uh, you know, for anything. When they came at me and said, well, you know, well, you you can't play quarterback here. You know, you can you can come here, but you can't play quarterback. And I said, why? And they just looked at me and said. You're not gonna play quarterback. I said, but that's the only thing position I've ever played in my life. You know, I haven't played anything else. You can come, but you can't play quarterback. You know, I can remember the guy saying it clear, clear as day. You know, at that time he was at the University of Florida. You know, so and that's and it, it was what it, it is what it is. You know, and I didn't buck up at it, and uh, I kind of knew that was gonna happen anyway because the the guy who was the, um the number one quarterback in the state of Florida, he wound up going to Syracuse. Okay. They predominantly, you know, they predominantly have um, black quarterbacks and then uh, East Carolina, they predominantly have black quarterbacks. So, you know, those were, we went, those are schools we went to, you know, if it wasn't East Carolina it's probably going to be Southern university. I probably was going to go to HBCU.
1: Yeah. So what are you up to now in retirement?
2: Well, not quite retired, Matt. You know, um, I'm still working. I take it back. Uh, In retirement from the NFL.
1: Let's put it that
2: way. Yeah. Now, is my retirement set? Yes. My retirement (laughs) is set. (laughs) (laughs) I would get that at 65. That is set. Yes. But, um, no, I'm not retired. Uh, I I have um, a quarterback training business, and I I train quarterbacks all over the country. I train some of the top quarterbacks in the state of Texas. And... um, uh, and I travel all over the country, and I travel and, and train quarterbacks as well. Um, I do a lot with Under Armour. Uh, I train all the quarterbacks on Under Armour, and I do NFL Combine training too. And, and in the early January and February, help guys get ready for, that, for the NFL Combine or for their pro days.
0: Jeff, I wanted to ask uh, you, now that you're kind of wearing that coaching hat with young high school players, mm-hmm. you played for a guy in New Orleans, Mike McCarthy, as the offensive coordinator. Mm-hmm who coached Mm -hmm. Brett Favre, who coached Joe Montana, who later went on Mm -hmm. to coach Aaron Rodgers with the Packers. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is Aaron Rodgers, when he first came to the NFL, it's unheard of for a first round pick to sit for three years behind an incumbent. That's not going to happen probably ever again. Mahomes, I think sat for a year under Alex Smith.
2: Right.
0: Can you talk about some of your old coaches and maybe some of the things that you are saying that they told you, and and you kind of hear the echoes go throughout the generations of, 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 Implementing what your coach has taught you.
2: Well, uh, you know, Mike's what? The new head coach at Dallas now, at the yeah. Cowboys now. And, um, you know, um, I was with Mike for uh, two years in New Orleans. He was offensive coordinator. And um, one thing I do like about Mike McCarthy, he's very detailed. He's going to die the eyes across the t's. He's going to go over every play, every time, every day, every week, every game plan. It's going, he's going to go over every play. Regardless, if it's the most simplest play in the playbook, he going over it. And um, that's just the way the guy is. And um, I really think he's going to uh, turn the Cowboys around because of that, because he demands you to be disciplined and demands where you, you to know where you're supposed to be when the ball is snapped and what you're supposed to do after the ball is snapped. So execution is very big, very huge with him. Um, um, some of the things that some of the coaches, you know, told me, you know, when I got to the league, one of the things I was I was taught in the league was to be persistent. Don't give up. Be persistent. Don't – just because you're not getting the opportunity, keep working. Keep working. Keep calling it out. Keep saying it. One day you're going to get an opportunity. One day I'm going to get an opportunity. And when you get the opportunity, that day you get the opportunity, you better you better take advantage of it, especially if you're a six-round draft pick like I was. you You have that one shot. That's it. And if you mess it up, you're, you, you'll probably be a backup the rest of your life or you'll be able the league within a year or two. And I had an opportunity uh, to, to go out on the field and play. Two quarterbacks went down the same game, which was destined. It was destined for me to play. because that very rarely happens when two, two quarterbacks go down the same game, the first and the second guy go down the same game. they both out for six weeks. So that, doesn't, that, doesn't, that rarely happens. So for me, for that to happen to me getting my opportunity and and for me to take advantage of it, those were some of the things the coaches told me. Be persistent. Be ready for your opportunity. So I always studied. I always watched film. I always, you know, would take the practice script after practice and go out and stay out there with some of the other rookies, and we would just go with the practice script ourselves. That's how we would get our reps because we weren't going to get any. All right? So the only way we got our reps was to just get, one, get a practice script and go out to practice and practice it with some of the other rookies or some of the other second-year guys or free agent guys or, or, or practice squad guys. You know. So that's how we got our reps. That's how I, I started developing my leadership skills as a quarterback as well.
0: I wanted to ask you, how difficult is it, Jeff, when so many players do not leave the game on their own terms and maybe aren't prepared for that moment when it's over, how hard is it to retire from the NFL to have your career end and go into a next chapter? Because I've always wondered there's NFL teammates of yours, uh, competitors of yours, opponents of yours that are having so much difficulty right now. And and I definitely think, and and I think the medical science backs up that there's a brain element to this and some, some, some of a traumatic element to this, but how much is it missing the camaraderie, missing the routine, missing the practices, missing the stage, there's no flight to catch and how much of it is just missing something that is so much a part of your life. That's kind of pulled out from you like a tablecloth.
2: Yeah. I know a lot of guys, you know, struggle with that, you know, that transition of um, retiring out of the league because that's all their, that was their main goal of their whole lives, high school, college, and they get to the pro and they play in the pros 10 plus years. And that's kind of like all they know. Um, so it can be very difficult for some guys to transition over because their mindset and their bodies are set and their clocks are set, you know, for practice, you know, to show up at training camp, you know, and to do all these type of things. And they, you do miss the camaraderie. You do miss your teammates. You, you miss the coaches. You miss the atmosphere. You miss game day, the big stage. and um, it's very hard you know and that's our that 's our that 's our high it's very hard to come off of that high and just drop it cold turkey you know it's like it's like trying to get off a hard drug, uh you know in two days. It's just very hard to do you know it's very hard to get off of the cold turkey and you got to kind of wean yourself off of it so um I think a lot of guys who start businesses while they 're playing like all lot passion my homes so i'm gonna go buy the Kansas City Royals you know yeah <laughs> so I think a lot of guys who do stuff like that or start businesses, construction companies, real estate companies, you know, business companies, you know, uh, start buying assets, you know, while, they, while they're playing. Those guys have an easier time transition. The ones that don't do that, those are the ones that struggle when they get out of the league because they have nothing to do, you know, um, other than the responsibility of their families. Even the guys who make good money, you know, even the guys who make really good money and really don't have to work when they finish playing, really don't have to do anything when they finish playing. They got to do something because they're not – they're going to drive their family crazy because their family not used to them being there all the time. Right.
1: Speaking of family, you've raised a couple pretty great kids, including Emory. Were you at the uh, Auburn-Alabama uh, game?
2: Yes. yes. Yeah,
1: what, what was that like? So, 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 for anybody who doesn't know, Jeff's son is Emory Blake. Uh, who was on the Auburn national championship team with uh Cam Newton right and uh mm-hmm. was on the team with the crazy return of that field goal, of the missed field goal against Alabama no
2: nah, he was he wasn't he wasn't there for that one he was already gone that was the year after he left
1: oh i thought he was on that team
2: no nah, he was yeah. he was on the national championship team but um what happened was gus had left him with the arkansas state so they had two years. his junior and senior there was kind of like uh, whatever Kind of like uh yeah. And then uh he played well though his junior and senior and then Gus came back and then when Gus came back it's when all that stuff happened. That's right, and that's Gus, right, that's right. Gus, yeah, so he uh, that's when Nick Marshall was the quarterback there. Right, right, right. That's yeah. right. He was he was there with the Todd kid after right. Cam. Yep. You know, so um and then um uh, Nick Marshall came in and that's when they were doing all that. They had the the Georgia game with the tip ball and then they had the Alabama game with the kick returns. That's right. Sure. That's right. Yeah, and that was, and that was, those those two games were back-to-back. <laughs> yep. So that yeah. was two good, two good games. Yeah. Speaking yeah, of former
0: uh, Auburn coaches, now Tommy Tuberville is going to go off against Doug Jones in November for a seat in the United States Senate. He beat Jeff Sessions in the primary. That's right. He Tuberville. Did. He did. Oh, nice.
2: Nice. What yeah. kind
0: of a thrill was it for you, Jeff, to come to Emory's Pro Day and throw to him?
2: Oh, man, that was exciting. And – and Emory asked me, he's like, Dad, you going to throw for me on pro day? I was like, you want me to? I said, you don't want Cam to throw it to you? Like, uh-uh, nah. He's like, I know what you're going to do with the ball. I know you're going to be there for me. You're not going to be there for yourself. I said, like, Yo, what about the other guys? He's like, them guys are going to be trying to throw for themselves. They ain't going to be trying to throw for me. You're going to throw for me. And I know where your ball is going to be at. And I know we, we, we have a chemistry together. i threw through doing balls his whole life. So he trusts me and I trust him. And we were able, you know, and it was like, it was, you know, real easy for us to go out and, and do his pro day.
0: So what kind of a dad are you in the stands? Are you a nervous wreck? Are you a screamer? Are you a just, just dead silent? What are you like?
2: I just watch the game. I'm kind of a silent dad, you know. Cerebral, I'm going to to watch the, the game. Yeah. And then we we'll talk about it after the game, you know. Um, you know, Emory was the type of kid. He, he knew how to correct himself. He knew how to fix it, you know. Um, uh, and if you don't, you don't go play for a power five school, if you don't go play for the Rams for two years, you know. So, you you know, he just knew how to fix it. So I was never worried about his game, or worried about him correcting himself, or worried about that kind of stuff. So it was easy for me to just be dad and just watch the game.
1: And let's awesome. give a let's give a plug for your beautiful daughter too, who is a very very talented musician, Tori
2: Blake. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, so how can uh, how can listeners uh, maybe 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 yeah,
2: you stories. can yeah, she, you can go to uh, she has an Instagram, Tori Blake, T O R R E, that's uh, two R's and an E, Blake. Um, she has an Instagram and she has a YouTube page as well. So, and y'all, you do just just type in her name, you know, yeah. T O R E Blake, and uh, yeah. it, it'll pull up.
1: Yeah, she's incredibly talented, and I'm sure being mm-hmm. a musician right now in the middle of COVID is no fun because I know she loves to do live shows and not yeah. a whole lot of that going on right now.
2: No, she they've been doing some streaming stuff, but I, I think they have an opportunity to do some stuff. They did one show, I guess, about a month ago, and that was it, and everything shut back down. Right. And um, So hopefully, you know, things will start opening back up and uh, they'll be able to go out and perform.
1: Yep. All right, well, Jeff, we're going to close you out with one, with one right. question. That is – um, if you could go back in time and give advice to your, your rookie self in the NFL, knowing what you know now, what, what would you tell a young 22-year-old Jeff Blake?
2: I would say learn, learn to be more uh, um, in tune with the organization. Organization. In other words, go sit down, and talk to the general manager, talk to the owner, talk to the, you know, be more, be more or less of a player and only deal with coaches. But also, you know, when you the starting quarterback, you got to have a relationship with the owner, with the GM, with the, with the with the with the personnel administration. That's what keeps you on that team for a long time, you know. And I think if I would have did that more in Cincinnati, I would have played there a little bit longer. If I did that same thing in New Orleans, I probably got an opportunity to play again after I got hurt.
0: What would you have asked the owner, Mike Brown, here?
2: If uh, what you were I in one of those him? meetings,
0: yeah. What would you ask him? What would you want to? What kind of knowledge would you want to glean?
2: Well, I would ask him, you know, um, what can I do for the organization? What can I do to um, build the organizational brand, the Bengals brand, other than just playing football, other than just playing quarterback? Because it's more, it's a brand. The organization is a brand. You know, they sell more. They sell more. They sell it more than just football tickets. You know, how can I be more involved in the community? I did my own community stuff, but, I mean, more involved with the community than what the team was doing, you know. So more team involved instead of less self-involved when it came to um, doing um, charity work and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I would go to Children's Hospital every Tuesday, but I was doing it, you know, because that's what Jeff Blake wanted to do and not because that's what the Bengals wanted to do. And uh, I, I would have wanted to do more things that was more – uh uh-uh, oriented than Jeff Blake oriented.
0: What was the reaction from the kids when the starting quarterback would come and visit them as they're trying to feel better?
2: Man, they they enjoyed it because we we would bring autograph stuff from other players and you know pictures and balls and jerseys and you know I would autograph stuff myself and we would just spend time with them and uh, we would talk to them and we ask him I asked him about the game and you know what they like about the game and did they see the game Sunday and all that kind of stuff so. And then, you know, we had some rounds to do so because it was all day on Tuesdays, which is my day off. So we tried to get it, get it in, every, you know, about two or three hours. So, um, but yeah, um, that, was, that was a really good thing that we did back then.
0: And can I ask you one thing that we'll put earlier before your like letter, uh, your
2: advice to your former self?
0: We're in the midst of, as Matt mentioned earlier and you answered earlier, um, a lot of awareness on social justice. Right. And Colin Kaepernick started by kneeling for the anthem. What do you think is the best possible outcome that can stem from the awareness that has been brought to Black injustice throughout the decades in this country?
2: Education. True, the true knowledge and the true identity and the true education of world and American history. That with the stuff that we don't get taught in schools. You know, Jeff, that's what that's what's going to come out of this. People are going to get knowledge on the truth. And that's what's going to come out of this. I see it happening already.
1: Yeah, Jeff, I want to say one thing. I mean, I think of myself as an enlightened guy and I had a moment, you know, a month, I don't, a day ago or a month ago, I can't keep track anymore. Um, right. When we were watching CBS Sunday morning and that's a great show a few weeks ago, Actually, when, uh, or a couple weeks ago, when they were really talking about John Lewis, he was sick. And, um, they mentioned the like five sort of Kings of the civil rights movement. And it was right. John Lewis, Martin Luther King Jr. And three men that I have literally never heard of. And,
2: Agam-Evers, Agam-Evers.
1: and actually wasn't uh, it, that, it, that isn't who they mentioned. They had they had three others. I, I, I know him. Um, Ralph but but my point is, is that as a guy who is educated, enlightened, has many, many black friends, all of those things, even I, I had a moment of, I don't even know who, who these men are. And, and, and I started to go look them up and and do all of those things. And I think you're a hundred percent right that like, I mean, I didn't even really ever think about the, I mean, as a middle-aged white man coming from privilege, and I can admit that the, the fact that, you know the term "whitewash," right? I never really thought about really what that meant, but that's exactly what <laughs> I have been taught my whole life, right? In in a in a in a in a in a, in a formal school education, and so I think you're a hundred percent right. And I think if if one of the things that comes out of this is is that we rewrite textbooks and that my kids get to learn a whole different American history than I learned, then then something really but, but good is true. happening.
2: The truth, like the meaning right. of Thanksgiving, right? And how it came about, right? <laughs> right, 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 absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it didn't come about the way they say it came about, yeah, yeah. Right. No, know, one, so no one so,
1: discovered America, by the way, like it was already right, here. Right. <laughs> there
2: yeah. were people, well, they, were, they, were, they were already, you know, indigenous and blacks already here, yeah, right, right, already, right. They were already coming over from South Africa, they were already coming over here doing trading, right, and right to, to South America, they were already yeah. over here, right, you know. so um, they just brought more during the, during American slave trade. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But um, but like you said, man, I think one of the biggest things that can come out of this whole ordeal is 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 knowledge and education. People are gonna ed- educate themselves on on you know the um you know the Moorish people. You know, a lot of people don't even know the Moorish ruled Spain for ruled Spain and the Mediterranean for over four hundred years. Right. A lot of people don't even know that. It's crazy. Right. Right. It's crazy the world history and and, an American history that's not even taught. Taught in schools. Yeah. You know, or that's taught from a different angle, right? But now with the internet, you have the power to do your own independent research now. Yeah. And I think that's what people are doing.
1: And I think that is the beauty of I mean, you know, you've you've met my kids, they're they're ten and thirteen and I think that's what I'm seeing in them And, and Zach has kids that are almost those ages, pretty close. Like what are are you 11 and 10 or
0: 11 and 10?
1: Yeah. 11 and 10. And, and I'm seeing that with my kids of, they are very skeptical. And when they have a question, they know how to go Google it and, and they know how to pick through what's real and what's not, you know, and they, they know how to dig and find the truth. And, and I think you're entirely right that, um, you know, I hope that we're raising an entire generation of kids that don't make the same mistakes we did. Well,
2: well I'm gonna tell you now, these kids ain't putting up with this crap. They not. They right. not putting up with it. No. They've been protesting for four months. Yep. They are not putting up with it. Yeah, it's not. It's not gonna happen no more. They, right. and if they happen again, they are gonna protest again for another three months. Yeah. And these cities, they don't want it, They don't want it to happen no more. So they're gonna have to really do some police reform, and, and tell cops stop choking people out on the street. Right. Stop beating people up.
0: Yep. Yep. Je- Jeff, there's a... un-
2: Stop shooting unarmed people. Right.
0: Jeff, there's a college basketball coach in North Carolina. His name's Lavelle Moten. And mm-hmm. the old coach at UC here in Cincinnati, McCronin said he is the best college basketball coach that really nobody knows about. And he, at practice, will set some chairs out We talk about coaches as mentors and leaders about things far beyond sports. In the basketball court, Jeff, he will set chairs down that are mimicking a a, a car. Like, here's the driver's seat. Here's the passenger seat. Here are the three chairs behind the driver and the passenger. And he goes through how his players are expected to respond if they are pulled over by the police.
2: That's a shame, though. You shouldn't have
0: to do that. No, right. Were, were you having those? There. Did you, uh, J- oh, Jeff? Yeah. Did oh, yeah. you yeah. did you have these? Did your did your yeah. dad did you say, Jeff? This oh, is yes, what happens definitely. if you're pulled over.
2: Definitely yes. Yeah, you gotta understand. My dad grew up doing segregation. Of course, he told me.
0: <laughs> yeah, we of talk course. about. We, did your we dad grow up in in the Jim Crow South?
2: No, he grew up in segregation South. Yeah, yeah. Jim Crow segregation. You know, Jim Crow was more what forty, fifties, yeah, thirty, forties, thirty, forties, and the segregation, civil rights was you know you know late 50s you know all the way through the 60s you know so he grew up during that whole era yes so of course yes he told me that stuff yeah
1: we talk of course, about yes he
2: told me how to prepare and how what to do when cops pulled me over
1: yeah we talk about Cause the talk right? cuz
2: that's all he knew that's what he knew
1: right and we talk about the talk right and right. as a as a middle-aged white person the uncom the the kind of jo- it's a joke right it is uh you got to have the talk with your kids and that and that's the birds and the bees talk right well right. you as a black man in america i bet had to have a different talk with your son right
2: yeah definitely, definitely.
1: Right? i have both of them right right and one of those <laughs> you can, of and one of those you can giggle about now but the other one you can't yeah. right
2: nah nah you can't can't, can't giggle can't you got to be very serious put your hands on the steel wheel, make sure you have your stuff already out before he comes up. So you don't reach for anything, yep. you know, don't reach for anything. Don't say anything. You don't have to speak. You don't have to say anything. All you gotta do is follow orders. Yeah. That's all you have to do. You don't have to, you don't have to, you know, speak to him. You don't have to, if he, if he asks you where you are going, you don't have to, you don't have to respond. You just give him your license and your, and your registration and let him do what he got to do.
0: Have you been profiled before?
2: I, I, I've been I've been tailed before. I've never been profiled before, you know, so did I get pulled over? No, but, you know, he followed me for a while. You know, he followed me through parking lots and shit like that for a while, you know, so I even went through parking lots just to see if he was actually following me, and yeah, he was, you know, but he never pulled me over. So that's happened a couple of times, you know, but um, I've never been profiled to the fact that where um i was um had I, like i uh, missed um like somebody like they thought i was somebody i wasn't or um they just profiled me because i was lying down the street or walking down the street you know i haven't met anybody like that that actually had the nerve to do that to me but one day it might happen
1: yeah well i hope when all of this is said and done you're right that we'll all be more educated that a lot more people who look like me and Zach are better allies and that we use our voices to speak up as much as you do. So.
2: yes, Yes. Like I said, uh, education is the key. Knowledge is the key. You get knowledge and educated on world and American history. I mean, real world history, not the, not the whitewash stuff.
1: Yeah. The
2: the the, 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 biblical, the world, the, you just, you just read it. It'll tell you. If you, if you read original text, it will tell you. You know, but everything has been – a lot of the stuff been whitewashed. So, you just have to kind of get past that. and You have to have an open mind to understand that. Yeah. You know, Egyptians, Egyptians aren't white. I'm sorry. They're not, right. They're from Africa. Yep. There were no white Africans back then, and there still aren't any today. Right. So, Well,
1: my brother, thank you so much right. for doing this. No, you're welcome, sir. Appreciate it. Yeah, you. get back to coaching. Hopefully all – I will, uh, sir.
2: Yeah. Jeff, we but,
0: appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for being our inaugural guest.
1: Yeah, we'll go grab Thanks for beers having in, me, man. Hope.
2: Yeah, hopefully, man. I hope we can get back to some fashion stuff, man. No kidding.
0: So, so Jeff, I got to ask you for the fashion. Cincinnati listeners, for the Cincinnati listeners.
2: <laughs> yes, sir. How
0: much do you miss the Grater's ice cream?
2: Oh, man, you know, I, I didn't I didn't have that. Cuz you were that that wasn't on the Bengals training table. No, but I didn't have that. You know, we went to uh, D- uh, um, Donato's pizza. That was Darnay's favorite pizza. Donato's <laughs> pizza. Uh, I didn't eat any Skyline chili. I want a big chili person. So would you head um, downtown I to Jeff Ruby's? I, I I would go to Ruby's all the time. He can I'd cook some steak now. Time. He cooks some steak. I would go to Ruby's at the time they had the the, the river the waterfront. Yeah. Um, at um, downtown. I mean on the water at the waterfront at that time. And right before I left, he uh, he he opened Ruby's. Ruby Steakhouse, and I used to go to the precinct too.
0: That's good stuff, Jeff. Thank you so much. Our best to your family, and thank thank you just for for all of
2: all your perspective. We appreciate you. We'll talk Uh, soon. You guys, welcome, man.
0: All right, thank you. All right, see you. Our thanks again to Shake and Blake. He was known around here as Shake and Blake for a long time. Running quarterback, had the quicks, could juke a linebacker. Number eight, Jeff Blake, fourteen year NFL veteran. Matt, great conversation. You know, guests on podcasts are really as good as they are honest and I thought Jeff was fantastic
1: yeah he's a he's a great guy I mean like you know I know him personally um I consider him a friend he uh he's just one of those people that you know I think he wears his heart on his sleeve a little bit I think you could hear that especially when he talks about some of the racial injustice stuff and um you know trying to be allies and all of those things and I I um I just I hadn't heard some of his stories like you asked some really great questions that I've never talked to him about, especially about his time uh, being recruited and going to East Carolina. I've talked to him more about his NFL days. Um, And I think that that's really fascinating. And, you know, and I, I think his story, much like Warren Moon's much like some of those early black quarterbacks, it's just a story of perseverance. Right. And it's one of those things that I just, you know, when I when I think of him as my buddy, Jeff, I don't think of it that way when I get to hear him talk in the way that he did with us, I do think of him that way. And it's, and it's really unique. And, you know, thanks. Thanks Jeff for, for, for wearing your heart on your sleeve for us and for our audience. And, you know, now, now we all need to go get better
0: educated. Right. I'm agreeing with you. I really liked the part that you mentioned about just some of the excuses that he felt were being made for not allowing him to be a black quarterback in a power five Conference. Ah, yeah. uh, you're too short. Ah, uh, your arm's not where we want it. It's just unbelievable. I had a chance to, and it's my favorite guy I've ever interviewed. And it, it was just, it was a highlight of my career. I got to interview Hank Aaron and I asked him what it was like for him as he was chasing down a white man's record when he was going after Babe Ruth. And he said, of all of the horrible things I heard, of all of the horrible things that were said, of all of the horrible messages that were left at my hotel, I never felt that I was ever going to be hurt on the baseball field because that was kind of my sanctuary. And I never thought about quitting because my mother didn't raise a quitter. And you really get the feel that Jeff Blake was not an NFL quarterback because God decided to make him God's gift to football. It was because he would not quit. Yeah. and 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 he would not take no for an answer and whenever he got the opportunity and the window of opportunity opened, he jumped through it. Yeah. And that's a credit to him. It's a yeah. credit to what he's made of.
1: Right. And I think when, when he talked about um, having that chip on his shoulder, I think the beauty of that, and when he talks about kind of the guys now that have, that have sort of followed in his and many others now footsteps, we're seeing that in the NFL today. Right. I mean, Pat Mahomes was not a highly recruited you know he was he was supposed to be a baseball player Alex Rodriguez was talking about him on um baseball tonight the other night about how A-Rod you know first met him because he, he knew his dad right a uh, pitcher for the twins and a couple other teams and you know and you know he he was trying to get Patrick to be a baseball player you got to give up football and Alex was like no i'm glad he didn't listen to me right and right. and i think same thing you know of seeing you know the NFL and I, and I, and I credit the NFL for this. I don't credit them for a lot of things, but I credit them for this of, of the coaching staffs and everybody else being able to look at these really, really, really talented college quarterbacks. And instead of, I don't know when this language changed, but it has been over the last decade, right? Where it went from, well, he doesn't look like an NFL quarterback and it all had to do with high hand size you 40 know time yeah 40 time you know can he throw a tight spiral right and and you know funny enough I think I think in some ways Tom Brady kind of helped break that mold um he's a white quarterback obviously we'll not, talk about a story
0: of perseverance it's yeah, unbelievable
1: but, but not the get out of the pocket kind of guy and what you've seen so so much I think a decade ago and I think about Vince Young right so same thing like he was he was the big guy who was kind of NFL sized but you know, he wasn't the cerebral guy, right, and and we got to watch him here in Austin, and I love UT football, and watching him play was one of the highlights of me being a fan, but, you know, even then, which was what, 2005, so 15 years ago, you know, I'm not sure he got the chance even as much as he would have had he been coming up today right back then even the question was always does this person fit in an NFL mold and now I feel like so many quarterbacks quality quarterbacks in the NFL have broken the mold that we don't even know what the mold is anymore
0: and well, I think I think, I think NFL offenses and college offenses are one and the same yeah they're starting the to look instances. a lot alike now right yeah. we're going to spread uh, you we're going to spread you out and we're going to yeah. run pass option and that's what yeah. we're going to do Yeah. And I, and I, I can't
1: wait to see somebody like Tua get out there, you know, and, and show what he's made of. And, you know, I hope he gets that opportunity here in Miami this year. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see with some of these young quarterbacks and what that looks like, but watching Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, and some of those guys, I just think, I think we're all better for it. Right. And I think it was, it was Jeff Blake and Warren Moon
0: and a bunch of those guys. And they Doug really, Williams, the first black yeah, quarterback Williams, to win a Super absolutely, Bowl, Absolutely. But those guys, well, Matt, I was, as, as Jeff was talking, I was going through the math in my head. I'm really amazed at the trailblazing that he did and Warren Moon did and Doug Williams did at Grambling and later with the Washington football team, formerly the Washington Redskins. And now you have a significant chunk of the NFL that has black-storting quarterbacks. And great quarterbacks. Dak Prescott, Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson. These these aren't just great quarterbacks. I mean, we're talking first ballot Hall of Famers. So Warren Moon in Canton is going to have some company here. He's not going to be the only black quarterback enshrined for much longer.
1: No, absolutely not, and and I'm excited to see this the next crop that comes right, and 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 frankly, I I like the college game better than the NFL. Um, maybe because I'm in Austin, I get a UT football game, and so I just kind of bleed college football more. Um, but I, I I just think I think I just think it's a more exciting product, and so I'm excited to see how you know, and as they and as NFL teams hire college coaches more and more and more, which is happening you know, I just think you're going to see the game speed up. You're going to have, and it doesn't really matter if it's a black quarterback or a white quarterback. I just think that that speed of the game and, you know, moving more to those college offenses, I just think is, I think it's better for football all the way around.
0: Great segment, man. Really appreciate you. We'll see you soon next time. Okay.